The gospel of Jesus Christ, by nature, is in tension with every other worldview. In fact, it, it is supposed to be. It was never intended to work in tandem or in harmony with other worldviews. So there is an inherent friction that occurs anytime an unbeliever is confronted by the reality of that gospel because, quite frankly, it is antagonistic of all other contrary viewpoints. It is exclusive in many ways by design, and so it offends people, which may sound like us as a mistake to us or a bad idea, but it is described in several places in Scripture as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So the gospel, the offense of the gospel, is there by design. And yet over time there are elements of the church that have attempted to soften the offense of the gospel or maybe even to remove it altogether. And so even though the gospel directly confronts our sin, for instance, Romans 6.23, Paul says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even though the gospel is by definition incompatible with any and every other attempt to reach God and transcend this mortal life, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. In Acts 11, 12, uh, excuse me, 4, 12, 11 and 12, Peter says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. <clears throat> Those are very exclusive statements. And even though following this gospel will cost us everything, as Corey just said, Jesus said, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, okay, even though scripture very plainly describes the offensive and costly nature of the gospel, some elements of the church have attempted to soften the message or, or maybe even remove the offensiveness of it altogether. And I mentioned this last week. I believe there was an assumption that softening the message would make following Jesus more appealing to more people. That, that if we remove the offense of the gospel, we could make it more attractive, easier to swallow. When in reality, reality, all that that really did was weaken the message to the point that people have now become completely indifferent toward Christ and his followers in our culture. As we heard in the video, it, it becomes no longer attractive to anyone. Because when we remove the offense of the gospel, we've effectively stripped the message of its power to transform lives, to overcome sin, to identify ourselves with Christ in his suffering and in his glory by giving up all that we have and all that we are to follow him. That is a difficult, yes, and simultaneously very powerful message, and it is a polarizing message Don't be mistaken. It isn't a works-based message. This is where we get confused often. We cannot, by any effort of our own, work our way into God's grace. That's given by Him and is in no way contingent upon any effort on our part. Even the faith that we have in Him is a gift from Him. So we can't even take credit for our own faith. Paul says, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. So the cost involved in following Christ is not required for us to earn salvation. It is required of those who have already been given salvation freely because we are followers of Christ, chosen and appointed by Him, John 15.16. We're commanded to bear our own cross, Luke 14.27, which is a symbol of self-sacrifice and death, laying our lives down for each other, John 15, 13, which is uh, not a reference, by the way, to self-abasement. It's self-denial. It's letting go of self-determination and replacing that with total reliance on Jesus Christ and His will instead of our own, which is offensive to those who are not followers of Christ because it flies directly in the face of worldly thought, which champions self-determination and self-will. And, and so our story today as we continue to work our way through the gospel according to John, is where all of this gets real, real fast. Because Jesus said all of these things to his disciples in part to prepare them for what they were going to experience in this world because of the gospel message that they were living out in front of the world, which was very offensive. And so as he continues teaching them in this part of the story today, he begins to explain what they can expect to experience for the sake of the gospel that they now represent. And, and make no mistake, it, it is not a very pleasant picture. And yet the message isn't just for them, it is for all of his followers, including all of us today. And it is one that we must not only grasp, quite frankly, but we must embrace if we are going to truly live out his gospel. Because if your goal as a Christian is to never offend anyone with the message that you live by, then you're either going to have to suppress certain aspects of that message or redefine them as so many are fond of doing today so that everyone in the world will like us. Which sounds really nice, actually. But it also means that you're going to have to cover your ears as Jesus teaches us today because he doesn't sugarcoat the reality of what we will face from the world as we live out his gospel and the very real cost, the direct consequences of following him. Now next week, he's going to tell us how that works and it's a very encouraging message. This is a bit of a hard message today. And the importance of this for us, the importance in accepting and even embracing the cost of following Jesus is the difference between those who abide in him those who remain in him, which he talked about last week in the first part of this chapter, and those who fall away, as he puts it in his teaching today, all right? Those who are not willing to accept the reality of what it means to follow Jesus in this world will not remain in him when the rubber meets the road, and it's no longer easy to be a Christian in this country if that day uh, comes in our lifetime, when, when actual persecution comes our way, when the church is silenced uh, by the government or the media, the school systems, when pop culture becomes overtly hostile toward the church and the preaching of his word. I, I believe the potential for that, at least, in our society is here. And so the question then becomes, will we stand for Christ and continue to proclaim his gospel when it actually begins to cost us something? When we begin to lose our privileges, our freedoms, maybe maybe even our lives. Are we truly willing to accept the cost of following Jesus or will we fall away when our mettle is tested because it is an offensive message that we represent and not one that will necessarily always be tolerated 
even in this nation. I don't, I don't think we can always take that for granted. As hard as it is for me to believe when I say it, when I hear myself say it, just consider how far our culture has come in just our lifetime. Now, understand human nature never changes apart from Christ. Human culture constantly changes, okay? What is being taught in our schools and universities? What is being offered at primetime family entertainment in the media today? What is being celebrated by our government? What is being suppressed by our government? And perhaps most shocking to me of all, what is being taught in some of our mainline evangelical denominations of the church today? What is being accepted and celebrated in many pulpits across America is deeply disturbing. These things have changed just in our lifetime. Now, of course, there have always been people in the media and education and government and the church who are opposed to the gospel, obviously. But what we celebrate as good, as sacred, as acceptable to God by society as a whole, and again, even in large segments of the church today, has changed. And the people who are shouting the loudest for tolerance in our culture are the very same people who are becoming increasingly intolerant of the gospel. And it makes me wonder, will we stand for Christ and continue to proclaim his gospel when it actually begins to cost us something to continue to follow Jesus? So let's see what, what Jesus has to say about following him as we pick up the story where we left off last week at John chapter 15. We'll start with verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Well, that's a cheery thought. Jesus is teaching his disciples to consider the cost of following him and to get it settled once and for all. First of all, that there is a cost associated with his gospel. There are consequences to following Jesus. And so he says, in effect, as far as the world is concerned, if you follow me, you're guilty by association. There is a cost for following Christ simply by being associated with him, which really shouldn't surprise anyone because, first of all, it follows a pattern that was established long ago. Ever since Cain killed Abel in Genesis 4-8, followers of God have been persecuted for their association with him. And if you think about it, the followers of well-known individuals throughout all of time, both good and bad, have always been associated with the particular leader or individual that they followed. If you're familiar with history at all and you hear the names Erwin Rommel, Heinrich Himmler, Hermann Goring, right? You immediately think of Adolf Hitler because those men were followers of Hitler and so they will forever be associated with him. In pop culture a few decades back, if someone said the name Tonto, you immediately thought of who? The, the Lone Ranger, right? <clears throat> if we're talking about superheroes and someone says Robin, who do you think of? Batman, right. Followers are associated with their leaders, and it's the same with Jesus and his disciples. If I start listing out the names uh, Peter, James, John, Matthew, Philip, Thomas, right, when you start listing those names out and you know anything about the gospel, you immediately think about Jesus, they were known then and now because of their association with him. And before the heat was really turned up for following him, they were all the more eager to be with him and to represent him. In fact, at one point, Peter, wanting to go with Jesus, said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. John 13, 37. Those are heady words. 
big talk from a guy who would completely change his tune in just a few hours. In fact, as soon as there was a real cost for simply being associated with Jesus, they all abandoned him. With Peter going as far as denying him with an oath and calling down a curse on himself and swearing to those around him that he did not know Jesus. I am not associated with that man. The very last thing that the disciples wanted in that moment was to be associated with Jesus because there was now a very real cost that wasn't there before. As far as the public was concerned, anyone now who followed Jesus was guilty by association. And today, in our culture, everybody either believes that they love Jesus or maybe they're indifferent toward him. And so it's easy for us to claim to be his followers. In fact, I'm thankful for that. I don't long to be persecuted, but it does beg the question, if it ever becomes costly to be associated with Jesus in our society, as it is in other parts of the world today, just ask our new missionary. If it were to be life-threatening, would we still claim that association or would we deny knowing him? See, Jesus said they will hate you because they hate me. Guilty by association. And Jesus is teaching us here not to be surprised by that. In fact, uh, John says later in 1 John 3, 12 and 13, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And then he says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And again, I'm thankful that we don't face extreme persecution for following Jesus in this country. However, there is a reality even today in our culture, that if you are truly following Jesus, you are hated by the world. Okay, when Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And that, uh, that word world in that verse is the Greek word cosmos, which is a reference to the created moral order that is an act of rebellion against God. Which means that even in a society like ours, which is for the most part tolerant of those who follow Christ, there is still an inherent hatred for God and his followers because the message that we are associated with, the message of the gospel testifies that the deeds of this world are evil, which as you can imagine is very offensive to the world. And so in Luke 6:26, when Jesus says something that would otherwise seem very peculiar, in light of what he's teaching here in John, it makes perfect sense. He says, woe to you when all people speak well of you. Now, normally we would think that all people speaking well of us would be a good thing, right? But Jesus is making the point that if, if we're truly following him, then all people will not always speak well of us. That we will be hated by the world, even in a society like ours that tolerates the church in its cities and in its communities and in its towns. Not because, not because we're offensive in our behavior, but because our message is offensive to those who are in rebellion against God. And I can tell you from firsthand experience, there are people in my own life who I have relationships with, which on the outside seem just fine, but in reality, the foundations of those relationships are shaky at best, not because I've ever harmed them or, or tried to malign them or hurt them in any way. I'm not, I'm not obnoxious about my faith or the gospel around them. In fact, I think they bring it up more than I do. Yet there is an undeniable strain that exists under the surface in those relationships because when they've asked me questions about the gospel, 
I've tried to answer very honestly and share the truth of that message with them because they asked. And yet invariably the offense of that message has an immediate effect. And then the claws come out. And sometimes I'm berated for what they consider to be my arrogant and exclusive truth claims about Jesus. And that has happened to me more than once when I've tried to share the gospel with others who were asking me about my faith or maybe how I applied my faith in the context of a particular issue. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. That was a warning to anyone who never experiences the hatred of the world for the sake of Christ, even in a tolerant society like ours, and to all who would seek the approval of the world rather than remaining faithful to God. Because if we are truly following Jesus, listen, there will be times in your life, there will be, even in this tolerant society, when as far as the world is concerned, you are guilty by association anytime you share the gospel. And when that happens, you may well experience the hatred of the world. And Jesus simply says, don't be surprised by that. In fact, expect it, because that is a part of the cost of following me. The world will consider you guilty by association. Let's keep reading. Verse 19. If you were of the world... The world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. All right, so Jesus says there are those who belong to this world. In fact, we all at one time or another belong to this world. But for those of us who follow him, we've been chosen out of the world now by him. And so the world hates us because uh, for them we are outcasts. We're pariahs. This is no longer our home. Okay, and so Jesus uh, says those who follow him are exiled in a foreign land. It's another cost of following him. 1 Peter 2.11, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Some translations say you are foreigners and strangers on this earth. Okay, a part of the cost of following Jesus is living in a place that is not our home. So we should not endear ourselves to it to the point that we no longer desire to be at our true home. Paul said, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. 2 Corinthians 5.2. This is precisely what Daniel and his friends experienced when they were exiled to Babylon. For many years, Daniel prayed for and longed for his homeland. Yet he wasted no time being idle as a stranger in a foreign land. Daniel was more productive for God while in exile than most people would be in their native lands. And yet Daniel never considered himself at home in Babylon. John was exiled to the island of Patmos, but he didn't simply try to make the best of it until he died. No, he received and recorded the revelation, and yet he never considered Patmos as productive as he was there to be his home. And just like these men, we're exiles. We're strangers in a foreign land, but if we aren't attentive to the gospel, if we allow ourselves to become enamored with this world, we stop longing for our true home. And so Jesus says, no, you're not of this world. In fact, this world will hate you because of me. So don't lose your perspective here. This is a temporary stop on your journey. And there's work for you to do while you're here, gospel work, eternal work. It is costly 
work. So keep your eyes fixed on me and your heart's longing for home. Because at times it's going to be tough. Let's keep reading verses 20 through 25. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. We don't belong to this world. But even beyond that, the distinction between this world and our true home is so absolute that Jesus makes it clear there's no middle ground between the two. He says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Whoever hates me hates my father also. And then he quotes both Psalm 35, 19 and Psalm 69, 4 when he says they hated me without a cause. You see, we're living in this world, but we belong to another. And there is no ground between them. So Jesus says, you'd better get it straight now because this world is going to hate you because of me. Your life will always be lived out in some measure of tension with the rest of this world as long as you follow me because you're exiles living in a foreign land. Ultimately, ultimately you don't belong here. And yet, listen, this is exactly why some elements of the church today will do almost anything and in the process compromise almost everything to try and gain popularity in our culture they're trying to find some middle ground where we can claim to be followers of Jesus Christ without offending anyone. Where we can say we represent the gospel without it costing us anything. Where we can share the love of Jesus without being hated by anybody. But it's a fallacy. It is not real. The middle ground is a made-up place by people who are neither honest enough to face the truth or courageous enough to accept it. So they've created a false gospel to placate the politically correct sensibilities of pop culture while at the same time mollifying their own guilty conscience. It is wrong and it is deeply disturbing. L Listen, we're not to be offensive people as we heard in the video. No, not at all. We're commanded to be loving, kind, patient, humble people. It's not our job to judge the world. We're not called to judge the world. We're called to love the world. We should never be offensive people. But at the same time, we have no right or jurisdiction to remove the inevitable offense of the gospel. And so as difficult as it may be to accept, there are some in this world who will hate us because of it. But we don't belong to this world. Now, as we continue reading, some encouragement from Jesus, just before he puts an exclamation point on this teaching at the end of our story today. So let's read verses 26 and 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me 
from the beginning. So Jesus talks about sending a helper, which is significant to note because the helper in uh, verse 26 is the Greek parakletos, which refers to one who is our advocate or one who advocates on our behalf. But you can't leave behind the rest of the verse. So Jesus refers to that advocate as the spirit of truth, which means that truth is required in order for that spirit who proceeds from the Father to act as our parakletos, our advocate, our helper. The point being, he will not advocate on our behalf if we're bearing false witness, if we're promoting a false gospel, if we're pretending to be followers of Jesus under false pretenses, because he's not the spirit of flexibility. He's not the spirit of sincerity. He's not the spirit of fairness. Jesus said he's the spirit of truth. And so if we're to expect his help as followers of Jesus, then we must be committed to sharing the truth, the truth about Jesus, which again is at times offensive to the world, but that's why his spirit is here to help us. So we're not alone, never alone on this journey. He's always with us as we are true to the truth of the gospel instead of some culturally acceptable version of it. Okay, let's finish our story for today with the first four verses of chapter 16. I think they fit better with this narrative in 15. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So Jesus wraps up this part of his teaching with some specific examples of the kinds of persecution that his followers can expect, which honestly is jolting, to say the least. But just before that, he says something in verse 1 that seems utterly confounding to me, given everything that he's describing here that his disciples can expect to endure as they follow him. So he tells, the, uh, tells us, he says, the world will hate us, that we will be persecuted, that we will be expelled from the religious community and that some of us will even be killed for following Jesus. And so it really feels like he's preparing, he's preparing us for all of this, just being brutally honest with his followers so that we can brace ourselves for what is to come. It feels like the point of all of this is so that we can try to maybe protect ourselves and each other from the onslaught of hatred and persecution that he says we will experience from this world. <laughs> when in fact... That is not at all why, why he's giving us these warnings because in verse 1 he says, the reason that I'm telling you all of this is to keep you from falling away. Right? The, the Greek word for that phrase, falling away, is the word skandalizo. It means to trip up or to stumble. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you continue to follow me, you will be hated. You will be persecuted. You will be ostracized. You may even be killed. But the greatest danger that you face is none of those things. The single greatest danger that you will face if you follow me is the temptation to fall away from the truth. He's talking about apostasy, diluting the gospel, changing the message just enough so that we won't have to face the hatred and persecution and rejection or even death for the sake of the message. Do you see how it all makes sense? 
why he's telling them all of this. And never more has this warning applied to the followers of Jesus Christ than it does today. Because I believe there's an inherent longing in us to want to be liked, to want to be comfortable, to want to be accepted and to be safe. And Jesus says, this is the cross we must bear. If we're to follow him, we have to be willing to lay down popularity and comfort and acceptance and maybe even safety if need be for the sake of the gospel. Jesus says, if you follow me, it will cost you your life. Maybe not an early physical death. It could. It certainly has meant that for some. In fact, uh, Jesus even points out the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And that has been fulfilled continually ever since Jesus said it. There's historical evidence that some of the early rabbis taught that killing those who were considered to be heretics, which included Christians, could be an act of divine worship. We know that's certainly how the Apostle Paul, before his conversion, viewed his own persecution of the church. Just as Muslim terrorists believe they're in the service of God when they kill Christians today. So laying down our lives for Christ certainly can mean physical death, but for most of us, taking up our cross and following Him, laying our lives down means giving up anything and everything that stands in the way of accomplishing the mission that He has set before us, which includes the refusal to experience any kind of persecution or disruption or discomfort in our lives for the sake of the gospel. And so if we allow the hunger for popularity to alter the message if we allow the desire for comfort to silence us, if we allow the longing for acceptance to compromise the truth in our message, if, if we allow our need for safety to keep us from boldly proclaiming the undiluted gospel, then we become impotent, ignorable, easily dismissible by the world. And Jesus knows that. So he continues this theme from last week as he teaches us that this discipleship thing isn't a part of our life. It is our life. Because not only is our complete commitment to following Christ commanded by Him, but it is exactly what the world needs from us. Right? The world doesn't need for us to be likable or popular or trendy or comfortable. The world needs us to be honest, even if it offends them. The answer to what ails society will never be found in government policies or personal freedoms, even better behavior. It will never be found in churches or church people who compromise the truth for the sake of public approval. There is only one cure for what ails humanity, and that is Jesus Christ and the unadulterated truth of his gospel. And he's chosen us, his church. He's chosen us out of this world to deliver that message to this world. And in the process, he says, look, it isn't going to be easy. In fact, at times, the world will hate you for it because it is offensive. It is exclusive to those who do not know me. And so Jesus wants us to come into this relationship with our eyes wide open and our hearts firmly committed, even knowing exactly what it is we're going to face. And in spite of it all, 
Against all earthly odds, he says, give it all you've got because my spirit is with you. So give it all you've got to the point that we lay our lives down that the truth of this gospel message may be heard loud and clear. That the voice of the church would be a clarion call to all the earth that Jesus Christ is the only way. And yes, that is incompatible with other worldviews. Yes, that is irreconcilable with other religious perspectives. And yes, that is offensive to those who refuse to accept it. So you need to understand what you're getting into, Jesus says. That is the cross that you must bear. That is the cost that you must be willing to pay if you're going to follow me. Let's pray.